Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Ramadan Karim, everyone. Uh, we've been out for, uh, we've been off for a couple of weeks, but we're back today with obviously Benjamin Red, my great co-host, but an awesome guest as well, Hisham Safiyuddin, who teaches Middle East history at King's College London and uh, has written a book called Banking on the State, the Financial Foundations of Lebanon. Uh, Hisham, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Uh, yeah, Hisham, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, this is actually a very special show because you are one of our guests and we've got a whole lot to talk about, about monetary policy and the Lebanon Central Bank and everything. But also for a slightly selfish reason, I want to point out, uh, this is our two-year anniversary for the podcast. We started out a couple of years ago as a plucky little elections podcast podcast. Uh, in, in April, right before the May 2018 elections. And we've been going for two years now. So uh, happy anniversary, Nizar, Susan. I'm glad to be on this very special episode. We are so happy to have you. Uh, we've got so much to cover. We have like three weeks of news worth to cover and so much has been going on. So unfortunately, we're not going to get to everything. We're not going to get to the Israeli drones that have been buzzing over Beirut or the border incidents or the strike against Hezbollah in Syria or the Baklin massacre or uh, Bank Audi's magic trick, or, or things that are all very important and all deserve a very deep dive, but there was so much other stuff going on, we just don't have enough time to get into that. So off to the races, coronavirus update, uh, there's some light at the end of the tunnel, it seems. As of today, the latest numbers that we have as of Sunday morning when we're recording this, uh, or rather Sunday afternoon when we're recording this, is uh, 707 confirmed cases in Lebanon and 24 deaths. Now, a week ago, those numbers were 672 and 21, respectively. And two weeks ago, it was 619 and 20. So the curve appears to be flattening. And, and some of those new cases as well can be attributed to expats coming back from places like Europe, where coronavirus has hit very hard. So, so now people are looking at when and how things might reopen. Uh, and, and the government, they have extended the lockdown until May 10th, but... The curfew is now shorter. Instead of 7 p.m. to 5 a.m., uh, it will now be 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. And and the government has also outlined a five-stage reopening process uh, d- during which places will be open in varying degrees. So, you know, small businesses get to open before big ones. Restaurants get to reopen on May 4th with 30% capacity. Then they can boost that up to 70% capacity uh, a, a week later. Um, and, and then like later on, like June 8th, bars and clubs will be allowed to reopen tentatively. Now, these dates will be subject to weekly revision. Obviously, the government is looking at, you know, the public health first, not just getting everything back opened up again. Um, so we expect these to change. But the government is now looking at sort of the, the light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully. So into a little bit more political news, our bread and butter here. Uh, we had a session of parliament this week, but it was not a normal session of parliament. Parliament was set to meet, meet on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of this past week. But weirdly, they met at UNESCO Palace instead of in the parliament building. No idea why. And what actually happened there is, is I mean, they, they didn't get as nearly as much work done as we thought that they might, as we hoped that they might. It was supposed to be three full days of legislation. In the end, they only did about a day and a half before they lost quorum, and they didn't pass a whole lot of the stuff that we thought that they might have passed. Yeah, it was a, it was a very sad uh, kind of session. It was a bad joke, this whole session. Uh, there were so many bills proposed as urgent and high priority that were demoted, uh, a bill to stop the construction of the Bissri Dam, a very controversial World Bank funded Bissri Dam project, uh, banning photos of political leaders in public spaces, creating a special fund for corona measures, protecting public sector workers' rights if their institutions are dissolved or merged, reducing parliament's term to have early elections, which was one of the demands in the in the uprising. Uh, another law about reference interest rates, uh, determination by the central bank, and another law by, about selling euro bonds to foreign actors like banning selling euro bonds to foreign actors during this period of time, and one about lifting banking services as well. So a lot of really important, or many of these laws have been supported by a lot of people or been awaited by a lot of people, and they were dropped off uh, you know, the priority list of the parliament. Um, moreover, we had 
a bill to lift immunity of former ministers so that they can be prosecuted in the judiciary, not only in the higher council for the prosecution of presidents and ministers. But the the bill fell after one hour because only two blocks voted for it and two individual MPs. So Han, the, the bill was proposed by Hanik Baisi, who's from Amal Movement, and Hassan Fadlallah from Hezbollah. But only Hanik Baisi of the whole Amal bloc apparently voted for it. So Anyway, it fell through, and of all of the FPM block, the biggest block in in, uh, in Parliament, only Alaoun voted for it. So it seemed like all of the the bills that are controversial controversial for politicians, but important for other people, were dropped off the session. Hezbollah and the Lebanese forces there on the same side on this bill. That, that that's two strange bedfellows. Yeah, but also goes back to a point that I think I've made before on this podcast that. Hezbollah and the Lebanese forces are actually kind of alike in certain ways, and they are they are seen to be less corrupt or slightly less corrupt at very least by a lot of Lebanese people as well. Uh, so it, it, it's interesting how those interests, even from these diametrically opposed parties on on basically every other issue, uh, bring them together on this one. Yeah, agreed. Another interesting thing that we saw was the on the amnesty bills uh, for for prisoners and and those who have been charged uh, with uh, non nonviolent crimes. Uh, we had two bills that were introduced to be discussed. Uh, one from Yassin Jabber and uh, Michel Moussa, who caucus with the Amal movement in Parliament, uh, and another from Bahir Hariri, of course, of the Future Movement. And both of those were shelved. They were sent back to committee by Birri uh, after Christian MPs said this was a no-go. And and basically, this was all three of the major Christian parties, uh, the, the FPM, the LF, and Kata'ib, all came out against this. Now, the, the the thing that's sort of unfortunate about this is that this is a, a very sectarian thing because these bills would have affected a lot of Muslim people, a lot, a lot of uh, both within the uh, Sunni political camp and the Shia political camp. You have large vocal constituencies who are very much affected by uh, Lebanon's prison system, by its justice system, and they would like to see amnesty. And it's unfortunate that this sort of sectarian thing uh, can be seen so clearly at the national parliament on, on an issue like this. In, uh, in that sense as well, it's uh, interesting to note that uh, both the parties who are seeking amnesty and those who are opposed to it, and this is to add to your point, um, are basing it on serving their own sectarian constituencies, as opposed to, for instance, a general belief in the right of amnesty or a, a particular vision of uh, rehabilitating or reforming those in prison. So uh, I'd say that both parties, those that are proposing these measures and those that are opposing it, again, coming from a uh, political sectarian motive as opposed to a reformist motive that is broader in outlook. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Another item that actually did pass was cannabis cultivation here in Lebanon. That was legalized. Yay. Hooray. Right. Uh, Not so fast. Uh, this is not the kind of cannabis that is grown in Lebanon. So ugh, uh, it, it doesn't, I mean, I mean, I guess it's a step forward for, for this uh, potential productive in- industry that could, I don't know, create exports and bring in hard, cold, cold hard US dollars, but not quite yet. Uh, that's not going to happen overnight. Also, uh, there was a bill to create a 450 billion Lebanese lira fund for private hospitals that passed from outside the agenda. And also something that we are going to be talking about in just a few minutes, uh, the government's bill to create a 1.2 billion lira fund as a social safety net. This is uh, part of uh, Hassan Diab's plan to pad the reforms that him and his cabinet are planning. Uh, That was not discussed because the quorum fell through on on Wednesday and Diab asked for an evening session to discuss the bill. uh, But Bittery basically told him, you know, you, you can't tell me what to do adjourn the session and that was it the day and a half out of three days was over on the private uh, hospital uh, i find that uh, quite outrageous that in the middle of a, a pandemic actually at the forefront of the fight is the public sector that has been neglected for decades the government or the parliament doesn't agree on all of the other reformist bills and then agrees on injecting even more money into the private healthcare system, which, as we know in Lebanon, is an extremely profitable system that really prioritizes uh, profit to health. So 
it, it kind of runs very counter to the idea of supporting the public health sector rather than the private health sector. So I, I thought that was extremely uh, provocative on the part of parliament uh, to do that in the middle of this crisis. Absolutely. And and that same theme of sort of like the, the private versus public and elite versus non-elite is something that we're going to also, it's, it's a major theme in, in Lebanese politics. And that's something that we're going to be getting into also uh, just in a few minutes. We should maybe also point out to listeners that the uh, way healthcare insurance works in Lebanon is you have a sector of the population that's mostly public employees that are insured by the government. Um, and then people who are the very lower end of the income spectrum, they basically have to appeal on a case-by-case basis to the Ministry of Health uh, to get funding. And some of this money is going there. So basically, the private uh, um, hospitals are benefiting from the subsidy or, uh, of, of, of uh, the Ministry of Health. And I don't know enough about Medicaid in the United States, which is, of course, in my view, <laughs> one of the worst countries when it comes to healthcare. In Lebanon, there is this uh, also problem with you know, the absence of a uh, public health care uh, for all. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so so that 1.2 trillion Lebanese lira, I th- uh, sorry, I think I said billion earlier, 1.2 trillion Lebanese lira rescue package that, that we were just talking about from Diab. Well, actually, Diab had proposed that a little bit earlier. At, at the time of the announcement, which was April 16th, not that long ago, that 1.2 trillion translated into about 400 million dollars at the market rate at the time but today it's more like 300 million so that's a pretty big change just you know in a 10 days or so to go from 400 million to 300 million the lira is just spiraling right now and that that's the fundamental reason the the most recent a thing that we have heard and this is coming from Omar Tamo uh, who is one of the nerds he said that it was when it was being sold, it was being sold between 3,700 and 4,100 Lebanese lira to the dollar. That is a huge acceleration from what we saw before. The The lira only hit 3,000 to the dollar on April 14th. It hit 2,500 for the first time back in January before crossing uh, that mark for good in March. And it hit 2,000 back in November. So in over the past couple of weeks, we've seen a dramatic escalation uh, in, in in the uh, de facto devaluation uh, or depreciation, rather, of of the lira from exchange houses uh, and and at market rates. There is, however, a big caveat to this because of everything that was happening. Money changers went on strike on Thursday, and so a lot of places have been just closed, not buying or selling anything. For the past few days, uh, they're set, I believe, to open on Monday. So we should get a much better idea of what the real exchange rate is. But as of right now, this has become a total crisis. Yeah, I mean, that's with around 4,000 now, that's 1,000 lira more than uh, the highest we've ever reached before, before this crisis in history. So that's a really big deal. And just imagine the impact of that on people's purchasing power. Like we're talking about really dramatic decreases in the value of the Lebanese lira that, you know, we will discuss the reasons why now. Uh, just the impact of it is absolutely huge. You know, if, if uh, uh, you're talking about the support that some people are getting, the financial assistance from the government or other organizations, if they're in Lebanese pounds now, they're losing value like crazy. And suddenly you go to the shop and you can buy much less than you could buy before. Not only because the exchange rate is... is uh, it's changing, but also because it's being paralleled by uh, uh, an increase in prices, uh, a process of inflation that is going in a like rising quite uh, scarily. So, yeah, this these numbers now we talk about them as numbers, but they're really people's livelihoods. Yeah, if if you happen to be sitting on a stack of hundred dollar bills stuffed under stuffed under your mattress, then it it sounds kind of good, right? You're getting a lot more lira for when you go down to the exchange. Until you go to the supermarket and you find out the prices have been also increasing, maybe not as much as the exchange rate, but they're going to get there. You know, there's a little bit of a lag, but they'll get there within, you know, two or three weeks, probably. On the other hand, if you're not sitting on a pile of physical dollars right now, either your dollars are in the bank or you don't you don't have dollars, you have lira, then you're fucked. This is a disaster. 
Oh, I, I, I also agree that uh, this is a serious problem, the instability of the price exchange. So the thing is, we always have to think of three actors when we think about devaluation, because people are always highly concerned, obviously, about the purchasing power parity uh, uh, that uh, they uh, can use to uh, ensure that they can buy their goods. And this is something that, as um, of you have pointed out, is on a downhill trend. So we're, we're seeing increase in prices in addition to the devaluation. We also have to ask uh, a question about the long-term impact of this. Where is it going to end? And the biggest problem is not the devaluation per se, it's actually the stability of this devaluation. So the fact that it settles on a particular number, hopefully not a very high devaluation, and that people have the capacity and the ability to cushion this devaluation. So they're either, again, uh, given some kind of support from the government, there is a cap on price uh, prices of basic goods. There's also the question of setting this price so far, the money exchangers have been leading the game, which shouldn't be the case because they constitute a very small part of the exchange uh, market. The latest uh, decree by the central bank governor has actually given the banks the right to set the price on a daily basis. It should be the banks who are setting the price. These banks, if they were to set the price, should be guided by uh, instructions from the central bank, which would uh, dampen this volatility. Now, this is all on the assumption that there are people in government and in the private banking sector who are seriously thinking about the long-term impact of this instability rather than on simply saving their own uh, skin uh, in this game. So what we see today should be put in this larger context of a total absence of uh, uh, prudent policy that can hopefully dampen and reduce this instability that we're seeing. Absolutely. But but we did get a little bit of news over the past few weeks on the policymakers prescriptions. Right. So so if, if we if we take a step back and ask ourselves, why is the lira in the spiral? Well, the draft of the government plan, the government's financial and economic gigantic plan, this was leaked a couple of weeks ago. It, it was only 34 pages long. So it's, it was very high level, sparse on details. Diab promised that the plan would be finalized this week. Um, so we're going to leave detailed analysis for the final product. But there there are policymakers right now working on this. Looking back at the draft, I, I just want to give a very basic overview so people know sort of the guidelines of what to expect the and, and the way that the government is thinking. It's broad. Uh, it's it, it covers a whole lot of things. It, it covers fiscal measures for the state uh, because the state is, you know, keeps running these persistent budget deficits. It talks about debt restructuring, obviously a necessary thing because we just defaulted on all of our euro bonds. It talks about uh, exchange rate policy, financial sector restructuring, as well as just structural economic reforms. And the plan also, uh, it envisions hardship through at least 2022. This isn't a quick turnaround. With an economic turnaround hitting somewhere around 2023 or 2024, it relies on 10 to $15 billion in external financing. Uh, crucially, this is with IMF support, but also using CEDAR funds, uh, the Paris Four Conference. The, the government's draft, draft plan also seeks to protect small and medium depositors in line with the stated uh, administration policy, but offers the possibility of a, of a haircut for the rich, even though they never use the word haircut. It does not mention lyrification or anything like that. Overall, I would say sort of the, the good, it, it looks at the problem as a whole. All of these things, whether you're talking about the state's finances or BDL's balance sheet or the fundamentals of the economy or the exchange rate, they're all interrelated. One affects the other. Uh, so you can't just solve part of the problem. You have to attack everything. So it's good that they're doing that. And the rhetoric doesn't pull a lot of punches. There's not a lot of happy talk. This is sort of the anti-Saleme, the lira is all good, a lira bichir type of happy talk that we've seen in the past. The bad, however, there are a lot of ideas uh, that seem to be recycled from previous proposals, like those relating to increasing state revenues and cutting state spending or the structural reforms that they mention. And to me, this sort of casts doubt on the plan's efficacy. Another thing is that it, it seems overly optimistic. For instance, it envisions the eventual exchange rate at 3,000, which already seems outdated to us now, right? 
the 3000 mark was something that was estimated by the IMF early on. And I think it's possible to go back to the 3000 because, again, what we've seen lately is high speculation. There, there, are two, there are two reasons for this devaluation. One is structural built in, which is very, very simply there aren't any more dollars in the economy and there's a complete lack of trust in the lira and there is a high need for imports. So these three factors are the structural factors that are going to keep driving up the uh, exchange rate in the near future. Now, we know that there has been a serious reduction in imports. The pressure there might be reducing over time. We know also that the central bank is pushing for de-dollarization through the forced exchange of dollars into uh, Lebanese pounds, which is actually causing inflation. But on the other hand, it is de-dollarizing. There's the third factor, which is speculation which is also a problem because there isn't any attempt, any serious attempt to stop speculation, which can include the shutting down, actually, of a private exchange uh, market and the creation of a centralized uh, exchange uh, office, a central bank. So in my view, the, in terms of the uh, price of the, of the Lebanese lira, it's possible to stabilize it at 3,000, but that requires some serious measures to be taken. It's too early to say we're going to uh, witness a, uh, a fluctuation in the next couple of months, plus there is a serious attempt to stabilize it. And again, tools to stabilization, the central bank doesn't have, uh, or at least we don't think it has enough dollars to uh, throw into the uh, the market. And if there isn't a, an end to speculation, and this is also throwing money down a, a punctured pocket. Uh, so on the monetary side of things, what needs to happen is capital controls, a gradual de-dollarization with, with a price uh, policy of, of capping prices, and an end to speculation to stabilize the, the Lebanese deal. Uh, and and hopefully this is what comes out in the final copy that we that we see hopefully this week or or soon. But looking back at that draft, it, it seemed to me that there was still a lot of work that needed to be done b- before we get to a level where I, I think normal everyday Lebanese people and people who are invested in the Lebanese economy and financial system can look at the government's plan and say that is a credible plan of action. Yeah, it's it's still not at that stage, and and we now and we may discuss this uh, soon have a problem because there is. Political disagreement over some of these measures, because obviously, if they are implemented, they may uh, benefit certain sections of the population and uh, go against the private interest of others. So, the disagreement over what the central uh, government, the central bank governor, is doing is creating, uh, in my view, a, uh, a blockage. Like there's, there's now going to be any such plan is not going to be able to go through if you don't have either a consensus. Or if uh, this uh, one vision basically uh, wins over the other. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the question then becomes, OK, so so the government has a plan. So why is the lira acting so crazy right now? Well, well you sort of alluded to this earlier. There was a BDL circular just on Tuesday. They issued a new circular allowing withdrawals of dollar accounts in lira at a rate specified by the banks. And the banks are supposed to specify their rate every day. And and essentially what this does is it sort of pushes lirification, albeit voluntarily. Uh, and crucially, it piles more pressure on that exchange rate, right? Because before, if you had a dollar account, maybe you couldn't take out a lot of money at a time, but you could go and get $100, I don't know, once a week or once every two weeks, depending on your bank, in dollars. Today, if you try to do that, though, they might give you lira instead with those same limits or maybe higher limits. I'm not sure what individual banks uh, policies are on this yet. But then you're going to I mean, most people are going to take those liras and go straight to an exchange and try to sell them for dollars, which puts a, a, a huge amount of pressure on the exchange rate. Yeah, I mean, this this decision was perceived like with it had mixed reactions from people generally, like people um, discussing it with me were quite relieved that they could now access the dollars, which is really like insane that, you know, as opposed to before when we were so insistent on getting our real money, the money that we actually have in the bank and the currencies that we have. Now people are accepting this decision as better than, you know, the alternative, which is not having access to their dollars at all. And this is just to say that the moment that we have reached is one where anything done is can be perceived as relieving. And this the same measure, the same decision can have actually the, the most counterproductive of effects. So if people are relieved now that they can uh, access their the, the dollars and through lira and then go to the market and buy dollars. Uh, and then, as you said, Ben, 
they will go to the supermarket and find all of the prices increasing dramatically in the next year or in the next few months. That's re- literally, that's the same people getting screwed by the same decision that they think is a relief to them. So that's, I think, why a lot of economists and everyone who's concerned with finance has been quite outraged about uh, the, the decision by the central bank because it came in this manner that is very open regarding withdrawing your uh, your uh, dollars and lira and kind of gave the justification for banks to continue the same process of uh, the same kind of practices of saying no more dollars for you, just get your money in lira, which is uh, just a bad cycle. Uh, it might look like it's relieving people, but it's actually screwing them on the longer term. Right. And, and as Mike Azar, another one of the nerds uh, who we're referencing more and more these days on this program, uh, pointed out that BDL and the government aren't coordinating their, coordinating their response is outrageous. And Hassan Diab himself told uh, Taymur Asari, friend of the show, we were not consulted on this matter. Kind of damning. I wanted to say something about this whole circulars that are that are going through. I think it's important, again, whenever there is a decision by the central bank that the Lebanese people ask uh, the question of how does that impact three actors, individual citizens, banks, the private banks, and the government policy. And the reason I say that is solution to this is not going to be individualistic. Understand, again, the pressure that individual people are feeling about their ability to uh, you know, uh, buy the basic needs. But to solve that, we have to think of the collective outcome of these circulars. So on the individual level, this is exactly what you and, and Nizar have said. It's a, uh, a sort of bitter pill that is given uh, in order to avoid an even more bitter pill. So they're telling people, at least now you can get your money. But it's in effect a form of indirect haircut because they're telling them we're going to lose the value of this money in a few days because the price of the lira is going to go even further down. So, And also, again, this is affecting a small minority. Maybe it's a 60% of the population, the uh, depositors. It's we're not we're talking about people who have less than three million, uh, five million liras or three thousand uh, pounds. So it's it's again very little money on the individual level. This is an indirect haircut to the lowest rung of of the ladder. Yes, it's better than getting it before for fifteen hundred pounds. In the long term, since there's no guarantee of a fixed uh, exchange rate. You're technically telling people we are uh, pushing the risk onto you. So the risk of a further devaluation is being pushed on from the bank to the uh, the depositor. So that's that's in terms of the impact on the individual. On the private banks, the matter of fact, if you look at the circular, this is telling the banks to start selling their dollars that are deposited at the central bank. These are illusory dollars. They don't exist physically. They are just in the accounts. In effect, the banks are doing, they're freeing their dollar accounts by transforming them into Lebanese pounds and passing that on to the depositor. So rather than give from their own dollars to the depositor and take in the Lebanese pounds, they're passing on their uh, illusory, their, their uh, account dollars to the depositor. We have to understand that bit as well. In terms of the central bank, what it is doing is actually it's trying to reduce its uh, liabilities because these are this is money that is actually owed from the central bank to the banks. So what Salim is doing is freeing up some of its liabilities in dollars, which it never did, by printing money and giving that Lebanese pounds printed in return. So this is the process in which all of these three actors are affected. And if we put them all on the same pedestal, we can see clearly that the the actors that are being you know the least uh, benefiting from this are the depositors and the individual citizens. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and and thank you for that because this is this is important to understand the motivations of the financial sector and BDL in in doing this, and and that is because if you look at uh, for instance the the draft government plan that was leaked, it said something on the order of about sixty billion dollars. There's a shortfall. We don't know how. You know, it, this money has to be made up somewhere, somehow. And if you remember, uh, you know, for an individual bank, some customers deposit in U.S. dollars. That's not the bank's money. That's a liability for the bank. The bank has to pay the customer back. But if they can suddenly, because we've got this scarcity of dollars, if they can suddenly no longer have to, you know, meet those obligations by 
paying dollars out of their own pocket, then that's a godsend to them. It's a godsend to their balance sheets. They're still paying it from their own accounts deposited at the central bank. They are doing it uh, by letting the central bank print Lebanese pounds and passing those on to the customers. As you pointed out, these are liabilities of the bank. So these are liabilities. This is money owed to the customers by the bank. Then the central bank owes the private banks because of the the dollars deposited by the private banks at the central bank. This is a process by which the private banks are taking out their dollars, which don't exist, they haven't been able to take them out before from the central bank. The condition of passing them, passing this uh, risk, uh, devalue, de-dollarization to the customers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so you might have noticed that we've been mentioning a couple of names quite a bit on this episode so far. One of them, obviously, uh, the prime minister, Hassan Diab. Uh, and, and the other one is, well, BDL or the governor of BDL, Riyad Saleme. And those two have been sort of the stars of this emerging political battle that has really escalated uh, over the past uh, few weeks on the anti-Saleme side, which, I mean, this has been around for a while. We've had numerous protesters uh, talking about uh, how they felt that uh, Saleme was not running BDL correctly uh, and, and a number of very solid critiques of him. But over the past few weeks, things have really escalated. We have we had reports uh, that surfaced about Saleme transferring over $2 billion outside of Lebanon. These are unconfirmed, of course. On Friday, uh, Diab gave a speech roasting the governor, talking about suspicious ambiguity in the performance of Saleme regarding deterioration of the exchange rate and the Lebanese pound, really laying it on. The, the government also hired firms to audit BDL. So KPMG, Kroll, Oliver Wyman, these are uh, really big companies that do accounting, auditing, investigations, consulting. And, and this move also was telegraphed in that draft financial plan. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the words that you have, you have used talking about Salami are a really big thing. It's not it's not just any attack or not not any criticism of uh, of Salami. It was like he's not being honest. He's not telling the Lebanese people what he needs to tell them. And he said the, there are three options. Either BDL is impotent and have any power, any ability to do to fix things, or it's being being obstructed by you know a political decision, or Salami has a role like has been having a role in instigating the deterioration of the. Price. Like Salem is on board with an agenda uh, that wants the lira to be deteriorating further. And for the prime minister to say this about Salemi, that's really huge news in Lebanon. First of all, Salemi has been glorified for ages as being kind of like the hero of the Lebanese economy and banking sector, etc., uh, being discussed as a potential presidential candidate every time a president's term is ending. It's, so it was like Salemi was like the biggest name. Um, and the one that is called, like uh, seen as you know pure from politics, etc. Now his name is under the, the you know just in the soil, being you know uh, stepped on by so many people, including the prime minister. That's really big. Uh, and also he's hinting what what Diab said is that you know we will not accept that you know some people perform some kind of coup d'état based on the devaluation of the lira. And that's he's hinting at what happened in 1992 when. Rafiq Hariri came after a huge collapse of the lira that has been uh, that you know uh, banks and uh, other people have been accused of being taking part in in order to overthrow the government of Omar Karami. So when Diab said we will not let this happen for the second time, I think this is what he was hinting at. So this is a very serious kind of political escalation between between Diab and Salem. Right, absolutely, and we we also got more stuff just. Saturday, yesterday, journalist Mohammed Zabib tweeted out pics of handwritten notes <laughs> on BDL and the financial sector that he said Saleme had submitted to the president and government last month. Uh, so it, it was just folded up pieces of like copier paper. Uh, and Zabib said that this is all that Saleme had furnished to authorities, point, pointing out that even your local shopkeeper keeps better records than this. Uh, and so that this started uh, a hashtag trending Riyadh uh, the Kanji. This is, in my view, an insult to the Kanjis because they, as you pointed out, they do better. <laughs> and uh, 
No, I I don't see a, a problem. Uh, Salemi might, you know, even do worse as a shopkeeper. Who knows? Uh, and so we've we've really seen an escalation of rhetoric against the governor of the central bank. But then on the other side, we, we've also seen an escalation. So on the anti-Diab side, Hariri, Birish, Mblat, Jaja, religious leaders, all of them came out and sort of criticized the government plan uh, when that was first uh, leaked. Hariri said, it seems that the government is heading for economic suicide, which is very strong words. Uh, Birri called uh, deposit haircut dead. Uh, and to be fair, again, the draft doesn't ever say haircut, uh, but it does give two haircut-like options, sort of. And and to me, this sort of illustrates a, a larger point that this is sort of about Lebanon's rich. Small and medium depositors are safe under the plan. They're, they're not going to be affected. It's, we're, we're talking about the big accounts here with the lion's share of the value of dollar deposits in the country. And, and, and so what we see here, we see this force of elite people coming out and saying, we're not going to accept a haircut. We want our deposits back. And, and it also shows that this is not just a simple March 8th, March 14th dynamic. Berri is very much in the camp saying we, we, we don't want any sort of haircut. Basile has uh, also said stuff that is uh, perhaps less strong, but similar in sentiment. And, and also, it, it's not about uh, like sort of the, the good guy Diab versus the bad politicians, I don't think, either, um, because all of them, like if you look at the policy prescriptions in the government's document, it, it doesn't seem like some sort of lefty enterprise or some sort of, it, it's all the same. It, it comes from the same consensus of what an economy should look like, the sort of neoliberal view of how the economy should operate. And and so I would actually put forward that the, the battle here is more between like the people who realize that the money is gone and the people who don't. To me, it just seems that Hassan Diab has looked at it and he knows the money just isn't there anymore and we, we we're not going to be able to find it whereas all of these other politicians don't quite realize that yet i, I think uh, they possibly realize it as well but they're trying to avoid having to pay the cost for it so the question is the distribution of cost which is again a very main theme of who gets to bear the brunt of the loss and this is the key question at the level of the distribution of uh, responsibility. So who should bear the loss for this uh, disappearance of funds, for this lack of money? And uh, I think, uh, logically, uh, the first people who should bear the loss are the people who are responsible for the loss. And the main parties responsible is, the, uh, firstly, it's the uh, uh, those who own the banks. So before we get to the depositors, before we get to the people who have uh, a lot of money in the banks, the first people who should uh, own up to this are the deposit, uh, the owners. And as a matter of fact, if we want to restructure the banking sector, we need to uh, freeze the assets of these people and apply the haircut or some form of haircut on them. Next comes uh, those at the uh, who have you know uh, maybe more than a million dollars or the the highest bracket, which are the rich. So this is a class question. Of course, this class includes elements of the political ruling class. So some of them are wealthy enough to be included in this class. There are others who should be held responsible. Their wealth should be held, uh, should be actually used to uh, come for the loss is because of the fact that they were uh, overseeing uh, policy and they failed to stop this draining of, fun, uh, of money into the coffers of uh, bondholders. So it's a question of I think it's less a question of acknowledging that there's no more money, a question of who gets to bear the cost for this lack of money. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I would 100 uh, percent agree with that. Moving on with, with this, we, we also saw I, I said that Diab gave a speech as roasting. So, I mean, well, somebody responded. Hurry's office responded the very same day. And and he he said, uh, you know, th this is not just Salemi's fault. This is this is it, it's nothing like that. Diab is ignoring his responsibility and should have produced an economic plan faster. There, there were statements about him, you know, causing the demise of the free market system and being applauded by those in the palace. Uh, and and also we are expecting on this note Salemi as well himself to respond to Diab. 
I think, Ben, the point you've raised about the nature of Lebanon's economy is crucial. Uh, before we talk about that, it's important to point out that the responsibility is, uh, in terms of uh, monetary policy, squarely borne by both Saleme and the Lebanese government, because as a matter of fact, there is a government commissioner who uh, sits in the central bank and who should be able to access all the records of the central bank and who should be providing regular reports to the Ministry of Finance about all the uh, policies being taken at the central bank. So the central bank governor um, is the executive who's supposed to implement all these policies. The, the responsibility uh, lies both with Salemi and with Diab's government. In terms of Hariri's point, I mean, of course, Hariri is the last person to complain about uh, uh, the uh, responsibility of, of Diab in the situation, because he himself, of course, was uh, uh, prime minister for many years, and he was responsible for uh, him and his father as well, was responsible for much of the policies that we see today. The question of the laissez-faire economy, the open economy, the free economy of Lebanon is crucial. Now, I don't think any of the uh, ruling uh, parties are fundamentally, as you'd also pointed out before, fundamentally opposed to a free economic system. The question is, do we want an extremely unregulated, chaotic uh, free economic system, or do we want a partially regulated uh, let's say first, do they want, sorry, uh, a partially regulated system? So the, the the conflict we're seeing today in Lebanon between the, the different factions of the ruling class is about regulation and a balanced uh, economic system whereby the industry and agriculture are somewhat um, uh, on a good uh, footing uh, compared to the services sector? Or do we want what we've had for a long time, which is complete dominance? of the banking sector and of the financial sector and in the most unproductive of ways because even the dominance of the banking sector is not an in investment banking, it's in rentier type banking, which is very basically um, uh, procuring more dollars from abroad and then siphoning it off into high interest rate returns on bonds. The, the fight we have is between those two factions. It's not yet about a total transformation of the Lebanese economy into something much more uh, fundamentally maybe uh, 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 socialist or at least um, takes into account, you know, the basic needs and rights of the people of Lebanon, as such as a welfare state, for example. I, I love that you uh, caught yourself. You said, you know, the question is about what we want. And then you said that what they want, right? Because the if if you look back at the history of BDL, the modern history is is seems to me as a layperson to be somewhat of an enigma because we've had sort of this broad consensus on this is what the policy is. Riyadh Suleme is there carrying the policy out, uh, but but that level of consensus was not always the case, right? That's true, but it was always the dominant narrative that has been taken up by mainstream media, that's been fed into uh, people's uh, minds through education, uh, through the media, uh, through political uh, indoctrination. So the dominant narrative is that uh, the only way the Lebanese economy can survive is by uh, being so open and laissez-faire, which is not true. Second point is this policy has been the idea of a stable fixed exchange rate. It's usually the overvaluation of the pound has always benefited the mercantile financial class whose main source of wealth comes from imports. So uh, historically, from the beginning of the founding of the Lebanese state, there's been this idea of the, uh, you know, the, mainstay of this economy is this uh, services sector. There has been uh, uh, opposition to it, particularly in the 60s, when there was an attempt to rectify this uh, lack of balance. There was actually the introduction of several regulatory uh, policies at the end of the 60s, which, by the way, saw a rejuvenation of the banking sector itself and of the economy. But then we had we reverted back into deregulation uh, with the civil war. And when Salemi came on board, shows the single uh, policy indicator, which is a fixed exchange rate, uh, to signify uh, stability, which is, again, a, an extremely impoverished policy. No country in the world relies solely on the idea that a fixed exchange rate is going to protect your economy and develop it. So he's really reduced uh, central banking 
under this uh, single indicator, and he's it's been sold to the Lebanese people as the guarantor of economic growth and prosperity. And this is what needs to change. We need to move away from this extremely unitary and outdated idea of what constitutes a uh, stable and vibrant uh, financial system. Yeah, absolutely. But can I ask you something, though, about this exchange rate? Because I, I agree with you, this is the one point that that has been elevated above all others. To me, it seems as though Riyadh Salime does not have complete freedom to change that or to redefine BDL's position on, on this sort of thing. It seems as though he's quite constrained by politics. To what degree uh, is BDL actually independent? And to what degree does Salime really have to answer to Hariri, to Aoun, to these other uh, uh, Zayns? Under the law, under the law of money and credit, so because, you know, there's a question of what can he do under the law and what can he do uh, within the context of the political uh, uh, situation that we see on the ground. So under the law of money and credit, he does have a what is called, you know, the widest of uh, authority, actually intervene both in the market to set interest rates in order to stabilize currency. So um, he is he is very powerful in that sense. But... You're right to point out that if there's going to be a major overhaul of the system, or if if you're going to, for example, implement capital controls, or for example, shut down the exchangers to to uh, to end speculation, this will require a government decision because it's the way through which you can implement it properly on the ground. So historically, it's both the government and the central banker together that uh, uh, can make change. Now, uh, in terms, this is by law. So the, the law of money and credit allows him, it gives him many instruments, which he's not always using, and he's he can't use as, as, as um, easily today. So this is in retrospect. Had he done those things in the past, now it's harder to do because the trust in the lira has already gone. He can't, so for example, buying or selling on the market is not necessarily gonna help him anymore the way it used to in the past. Cutting interest rates could, and he did some of that. He reduced interest rates, but it was a little too little too late. So um, it is the case that he needs government backing. He needs legislation from parliament. But again, I don't think he's keen on that in the first place because he is protecting the interests of the uh, bankers. We didn't talk about the association of banks in this equation, which have a very important role. So um, he'll have to, he's subordinate ultimately to uh, the president, and to actually in the aposta, if he's subordinate to the Council of Ministers, to the government. The government and the Ministry of Finance particularly has a big role to play here, which it's not stepping up to um, in this case. You you say in your book that the model of central banks followed in Lebanon served rather than challenged the interest of an oligarchy of local bankers. Can, can you elaborate a bit on that? The early and during the 1950s, uh, countries around the world who were gaining their independence were pushing for the creation of national central banks in order to regulate the banking sector and to protect the national economy from uh, foreign uh, capital that is not uh, coming in to uh, grow the, the country. So in the case of Lebanon, it was the, the private bankers. They created the Association of Banks in Lebanon, which, by the way, according to the archives, was created largely to prevent the creation of a central bank. So most of the private bankers in Lebanon were vehemently opposed to regulation of any sort. When they failed to do so, they hollowed out the law of money and credit from certain provisions that would have enabled the central bank better control the banking sector. I'll give you some examples. It was initially the draft of the, of the law to have allowed the central bank to organize and classify banks based on their function. So you would have had investment banks, you would have commercial banks. This would have better improved the ability of these banks to grow the economy. Bankers refused. They wanted to have a full blanket in terms of what they do. Uh, the, the law was also supposed to allow the central bank to access much more information from these banks. The bankers opposed it because they uh, used the secrecy law of 1956 to claim this will impede the function of the banks. So they, they managed to uh, sustain some level of autonomy against the central bank. Third one was uh, cash reserve requirements. 
which is how much the bank can order, the, uh, the central bank can order the banks, put money in its coffers to regulate credit. So uh, eventually there was a provision, there is an article in the law that allows the central bank to uh, impose these measures, but it was very minimal. And it wasn't even instigated until after the intra-crisis. So the bankers uh, were, were uh, had a role in the drafting of the law of money and credit. They also introduced, and this is an important point, I think, that is left out from the discussion in Lebanon today. They introduced provisions which they were party to the decision-making process. There was a consultant, there's now a consultancy uh, uh, committee on which they sit which means they can you know, follow everything that the bank is doing. The, uh, when there was regulation in the late 60s, they get, to, uh, be, uh, they get to nominate people who sit on the Banking Control Commission, which is crazy because those are the people who are supposed to monitor the banks. Right. The, the, the Banking <laughs> Control Commission today, yeah. they submit candidates and then the, uh, the Minister of Finance decides. Also, in terms of the insurance deposit organization, which is responsible for guaranteeing insuring the money of people, which, again, uh, the limit hasn't been increased uh, until recently. They also control 51% of its decision-making process, even though it's a 50-50 uh, investment by the private public sector. But they implanted themselves within the structure of governance. This is not just about lobbying. They don't only lobby the, the politicians. They actually are structurally embedded the uh, governance central banking in this country. That's what needs to change uh, in the long run. And, and, and as far as this goes, though, you, you spoke about the history, but in modern times, a lot of us have sort of gotten used to this idea that Riyadh Saleme is this sort of king and the bankers have to do whatever he says. To what degree is that still true today? And to what degree is this or, or is that just a sort of a convenient fiction? Um, I don't think that's accurate. He is very powerful, but uh, the association of banks in Lebanon, in my view, in terms of the oligarchy that is uh, uh, rules, you know, the Lebanon uh, side to side and in sometimes uh, in cahoots with the sectarian leaders, is the association of banks in Lebanon. So yes, Salemi is part of. I mean, I call them the Trinity of governance. This Trinity is Riyadh Salemi or the central bank. Uh, the Association of Banks in Lebanon, and the Executive uh, and uh, uh, Legislative Branch of Government. Now, Salemi, he does have an advantage of being in power or in his post for 30 years. This gives him institutional uh, authority. So he probably has knows all the, all the dirt on everybody. He has managed this for so long that he understands very well the strengths and the weaknesses of the system. This gives him an edge. This allows him on, in addition, of course, to all the executive authority he has as central bank governor. So if I would say he, it's not a one-man show, he is an important uh, anchor. He's very powerful. He, he, he is to blame. He needs to be held accountable. We have to see the association of banks in Lebanon as another very important pillar in uh, governing the financial system and even designing it from uh, in the outset. I mean, what we have seen in the last uh, in, in the last statements by Diab is kind of throwing the blame at Salemi for basically monetary policy, but for the lack of transparency, for possible even like um, uh, intentional damage that he might be contributing to in terms of the legal deterioration. But overall, we're saying that uh, uh, Diab came in with this, you know, half technocratic government seeking to fix things and. And then he, he's portraying things as if like he's hit the wall called Riyad Salemi, who is actually the king of monetary policy. So kind of to wrap things up in, in the near future, we're seeing now, you know, the central bank stepping in with certain circulars, certain measures, the government not being able to enact so many things uh, on its end uh, concerning capital controls. The law, the bill was dropped. Uh, and then the haircut uh, idea was also dropped according to Berry and probably many controversial policies that will be discussed in, in the cabinet will just be dropped and the only one who's actually making policies is the central bank. In the future, do you think, Ishan, that this, that first of all, in, in, in terms of the Lebanese system and the Lebanese laws, is the central bank really the only entity that can make monetary policy or does it 
or can the government basically impose a certain monetary policy on the central bank, just like in simple terms? And then uh, who do you think will have like the main agency in, in acting policies in the near future, given the policy, the politics that we've been seeing? Uh, firstly, the in terms of the day-to-day running of monetary policy, it's the central bank and the, uh, sorry, the central bank governor and the uh, council, the central bank council that makes policy. The two, the two offices that are key to uh, monetary and fiscal policy are the Ministry of Finance and the Central Bank Governor and the Council. It's true that on a day-to-day basis, what the, what the government is, can do and has the, the legal authority to do is to monitor. The government has the authority to inspect famous books, which it's not doing. And this is about the Ministry of Finance. So it's interesting who now is running the Ministry of Finance, who is, of course, considered close to Birri. So in terms of that's the mechanics of it. The government on a day-to-day cannot intervene in uh, Salim's uh, work except through its presence in the council and through monitoring. This is key, by the way, transparency. You've mentioned transparency. The first step up until today, it is incredulous that we don't have a proper balance sheet. This is, this is, this is unbelievable. So it's true. Demi is standing in the way of having a balance sheet, but the Diab should call on his minister of finance to do his job and require the commissioner at the central bank to provide this information. Second point you've raised is uh, the collapse or the lack of proper functioning of many of Lebanon's state institutions, whereby this gave Salemi uh, the position of this dominance. He himself says, Salemi, many years ago in 2015, the central bank has become the state. He says it. Because of the lack of functioning, and this brings us, and it's a way to actually possibly uh, wrap this up, is that without fundamental political change in this country, it's very hard to see how you know a new governor might implement some good uh, policies to kind of stop the total collapse. Without a fundamental change in the political system, I don't see a fundamental change in the economic future of the country. Ugh. Great stuff. Optimism. <laughs> Tall order. I mean, the, the uprising, you know, I think a lot of these concessions happening today, there are many minuscule, but the change in the, the conflict among the ruling class is a reflection of the change also that is being pushed by people. And the, the biggest challenge is how to organize the forces that are opposed uh, into something credible. So again, the Diab government has taken important steps compared to its predecessor governments. It's still short of a major overhaul. And yeah, we are not going, in my view, to see change um, unless we have this kind of political transformation. But it doesn't mean that starting with the central bank is a good idea. It's, it's good to start with Salemi, as long as it doesn't, again, uh, reduce into... Uh, People. It's not about individuals. That I mean should be held accountable, but we need a proper outline of what policy the new central bank governor, if there is a new governor, should uh, should abide by. Will they make such a move? We have uh, now we get the geopolitics also of Lebanon, which I don't think we want to open up that Pandora's box. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's a yeah. whole other topic. <laughs> but I guess what what you're hinting at is is very important to me, especially as someone who's very interest, interested in, in independent political movements in Lebanon. Uh, the fact that, you know, now we're kind of navigating a minefield in terms of like politics being polarized on the old lines again, more or less. Although Hassan Diab is a different actor, he's not really much, a- he's not really anywhere clear on the spectrum of March 8, March 14. He's trying to kind of create his own line, connect with the middle class that was part of the revolution that, you know, uh, wants to see someone who's sending in, the big guys. But ultimately, it's the Council of Ministers in Lebanon who has the monopoly over decision-making. My view, this is the kind of sessionary approach being taken by a faction of the ruling class. They are directing it. Each faction is directing it towards the other. But in this case, Diab is representing a reasonable faction within the ruling class that's saying we need to make some changes to survive. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. What what I was trying to make is to say is that you know it's uh, it's becoming more and more difficult to take positions on things again because of this polarization. So now, if you're criticizing Salemi too much, you're being portrayed as you know part of the uh, March eight or you know Hassan Diab side of things. And then if you're criticizing uh, uh, Hassan Diab, you're automatically associated with you know the Hariri Al Af 
جنبلات كايند اوف اجندا سو اتس بيكمينج مور مور ديفيكلت تو كايند هاف ذا سيم ريتوريك ذا سترونج ديسكورس اوف كلهم يعني كلهم اول مينز اول ذات واز فيري بروميننت ديورينج ذا ريفولوشن سو اند ناو يو نو سمثينغ وي هافنت ديسكاس از ذا كايند اوف ذا سيمبوليك اتاكس اون ذا بانكس ان ذا لاست كابل اوف دايز ا جرينيد ثرون ات بانك انسايدا انذر مولوتوف اجينست ذا بانك ان ان سور اتسترا سو اتس بين There has been this, these events where, you know, it's also more and more difficult to take positions on regarding what people are doing and regarding, you know, all of the calculations that you have to make. Is this really someone who's just angry or is this someone who is politically motivated? Uh, obviously, the political parties are trying to exploit the streets and people protesting, but are they actually uh, creating or instigating some of these protests for their own agendas? So it's becoming more and more difficult. And um, uh, I think uh, this is the point where, you know, we. Uh, this is the point where I'm seeing the defeat of uh, the uprising in terms of what kind of public sphere it imposed uh, in the country and what kind of discourse and rhetoric. And I think that uh, Hassan Diab is actually the only one who's still catering to uh, the Thawra mindset and the Thawra discourse among the politicians. As you're saying, he's part of the ruling class that is kind of more cons- uh, giving concessions or uh, more um, um, excited or acknowledging of the need to, to, uh, to do reforms. Uh, but I think actually what he's trying to do is kind of create a certain popular coalition around him. If this is going to succeed, it's going to be an interesting change in Lebanese uh, politics to see in, in the near future. I don't see, given the economic fundamentals, how that is remotely possible, but I do wish him the best. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, I hope that, uh, you know, all of the policymakers figure out exactly what should be done because what we're about to go through is really terrible. Um, so hopefully they, they, they do come out on top and are able to fix things before things get really bad. I think that's all of the time we have for, uh, for this episode. We have to th- wrap things up. Thank you so much, Hisham, for uh, coming on the show. It was really great having you. Um, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, and to everyone on, on your team, it's been a real pleasure. And um, obviously, we would like to have you in the future, hopefully for another episode. Uh, you know so much about the history of banking in Lebanon, apart from the Central Bank, and there's so many stories there. Um, anyway, we will be back um, next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Hisham Safiuddin. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.